this time of year, as the video has already pointed out for us, can be chaotic, right? And a little stressful, thanks to Christmas chaos. Uh, and it's amazing because this is the time of year that the themes are peace, right? Joy, um, love. That's what all the Christmas cards say. Uh, peace is a big one, right? Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and this is his birth, and they said, peace on earth and goodwill towards men, the angel said. And so, but then a lot of times we don't feel like we experience that peace <laughs> this time of year. There's a lot of extra stress and anxiety sometimes that come with the holidays. And then you add to that uh, just the stress and anxiety that can come from, or the stress that can tempt you to anxiety uh, from the world today as you look around. Uh, and as we think, and we see acts of terror, and we see violence and we see a culture that continues to shift and, and, and morph. Um, we see a country that tends to be very divided uh, and people that tend to be very divisive. And there's plenty of things that we could stress over and have anxiety over um, this time of year. And stress not dealt with properly, um, that kind of tension in our life creates anxiety and worry and ultimately robs us of peace. And it's God's will that if you're a Christian this morning, that, or it's God's will that you walk in peace. Uh, Jesus, like I said, is the Prince of Peace. And so one of the things that happened at the very beginning um, when Adam and Eve sinned, and as many of the times we have to travel back in time to the garden to understand things that are going on today, and from the very beginning when Adam and Eve chose to sin and rebel against God, um, they forfeited peace. And we forfeited as humanity peace with our sin because sin brings consequences and it brings conflict and we have sin and we have suffering and we have a lot of troubles in this life and things that tempt us to anxiety and stress and robs us of peace um, because humanity at that point in time decided to not have peace with God but kind of declared war in our relationship with God as we set out to live life our own way. God said live life this way and walk in community and harmony with me. And Adam and uh, Eve said we'll live life this way. And, and, and the, the peace in the relationship with God was severed at that point. But the whole Christmas story is that the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has come into the world to bring peace on earth. And the first sense of peace he brings is peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus brings peace with God. And so the first step in experiencing peace in our life is having peace with God. If there's not peace with the one who made you, the one who created you, and the one who created the whole purpose for life, there can't really be peace in your life, not, not lasting peace. And so many times we'll struggle majorly in certain seasons of life, in certain times of life, with major anxiety and major worries. Uh, and sometimes that's because there's a root issue there between us and our Creator, because we know God created us to have peace with Him and to have harmony and relationship with Him, but sin robs us of that. And so that gets restored upon a relationship with Jesus, right? Who, who died to satisfy the wrath of God, who bore our sins in his body, who was crucified, who was resurrected. And by faith in him, we now have peace with God. Jesus, the Bible says, made that peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians tells us. And so Christmas is about peace. And so Christmas points us ahead to the cross. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is yours in Christ, according to Romans 5, 1 and various other scriptures. But we don't always experience the peace of God, right, in our lives. And so we experience things that tempt us to worry and get concerned, uh, overly concerned many times. And, but we get sinned against and we sin. We experience things in this life like wars and rumors of wars. 
We experience painful things and troublesome things and worrisome things. We go through difficult times. And peace with God speaks to our relationship with God. But the peace of God speaks to how we deal with and react to the circumstances around us. Based off that relationship with God. And so many times even though we have peace with God. We're not at war with God and God's not at war with us. We're friends of God. Family members of God. Sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ. But with the circumstances in our life and the things that we go through, if we're not careful many times, we won't experience the peace and the tranquility that God wants to bring to our lives. Now, that doesn't mean, and we're going to talk about that this morning, that, he wants, that He's going to do away with all the problems in our life. That's not really how it works. He, we, we are in between times in, in this world right now. We are living between the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the, the first coming of the Son of God, and the, and the second coming. And so the Prince of Peace has come into the world and we can have peace with God through him and we can have the peace of God through very difficult and painful times. But the time has not yet come where those difficult and painful and worrisome sometimes times has passed away. That time is coming in a new heaven and a new earth after Jesus returns and brings ultimate peace to the earth and all wars are over and all sin is over and all suffering is over and all the things that could cause us to worry are over. But between now and then, we're in between times and we are to live our lives in such a way that reflects that we have peace with God and God offers us the peace of God as we await the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, this morning we're in Philippians chapter 4, especially verses 2 through 9. Uh, We're going to read starting in verse 1 for the sake of context. But this is the classic text on the peace of God. There's a few, but this is kind of the big daddy of them all. This is the one you think about when you think about worry probably. If you're familiar with the scriptures. Now, if you're not a believer, we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to get to it here in just a few minutes of how to have walk in the peace of God. But if you're not a believer, you need to know that you can have this peace too. The Bible teaches us this morning that it's available in Christ Jesus. And so if you'll come into a relationship with Christ Jesus, this this peace is offered to everyone. And if you're a believer, uh, this is God's promise for you if you will choose to walk in it. Uh, we are going through the book of Philippians, chunk by chunk, verse by verse. And we're on week seven. And next week, we're going to, uh, Lord willing, we're going to finish up this series. Um, but we have been seeing a lot of the things that are connected to the theme of joy that runs through Philippians. Uh, Paul's a guy, as we've said every week, who is, who is writing from prison. Had lots of reasons to be stressed and to be worried. And had lots of reasons to not have joy in his life. But he writes the one of, of his letters that is the most themed with joy and rejoicing while in a prison, while in jail. And so we learn from Paul's writings how we too can have joy. And we've been going through that. And this week we see one of the key elements to walking in joy is having the peace of God in our lives. So look with me at Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown... Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful this morning for your scriptures and how it points us to how to have joy and how to have peace in this life through Christ. And we pray that you'd help us to understand your word by the power of your spirit this morning and help us to apply it to our lives. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, so Philippi, this church that Paul's writing to here, uh, had stress coming at them from without and from within. From without, they had the false teachers that we've uh, we spoken of uh, last week. Um, they also may have been experiencing persecution, it's possible, to some degree. And they also dealt with poverty. You read in Acts that this was one of the poorer churches, um, one of the churches that Paul brags on for being so generous in spite of their poverty. And so they had lots of reasons around them uh, to be anxious, probably. But one of the big ones was from within. Um, we see here, we read about, and we've kind of hinted at it throughout the series, that there was some some quarreling, some disagreeing going on within the church body. And I believe it was very likely uh, that these two ladies, Euodia and, 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 and Syntyche, and I actually had to look up how to pronounce that because I thought it was Syntyche, and it's not. It's Syntyche, uh, according to the Bible readers that get paid to read the Bible. I don't, you know, I guess I kind of do get paid to read the Bible. But uh, they get paid to actually read it and not teach it. So so anyway, so, but this is actually two ladies uh, um, in Philippi who are godly women, and but they're having a disagreement and to the point that an apostle who's in jail feels the need to address it in the letter. So it's a pretty big disagreement, and it's probably causing some worry within the church as, uh, as, as disunity within the church can do that. And these weren't problem people, I don't think. You know, and, and problem people are people who it's their character to cause problems and to always have problems and to always be fighting and quarreling with someone in the church. And so they hop from fight to fight many times from church to church having disagreement. That's not these women. It's not their character. Paul says these are women who labored side by side with me in the gospel together uh, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. He calls them fellow workers. He says they're laboring in the gospel. These are godly women. You remember that Philippi... Um, was largely, the church was started and there was a group of women very involved in that, one of which was a very, uh, the most famous of which was a lady named Lydia, who the book of Acts tells us about, and who was one of the first Christians there in Philippi. And so, um, I believe here in this situation, you have some godly women who have played a prominent role of some sort within the church, who are now having a disagreement. And this is not characteristic, it's uncharacteristic. And that's probably why it was so troublesome to the church to a degree. And one of the reasons Paul keeps kind of coming back and, and, and hinting on this. And so, it's out of character. These are our godly women. So he tells them, he says, I want you to agree in the Lord. And that word agree in the original language, it, 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 it's, it's a, it talking about your thinking. It, it's a mental thing. It's a mental choice uh, to be in unity of mind. And he says, I want you to, because that's where it starts, the Battle for unity and even the battle of peace begins in your mind. And he says, I want you to choose to agree in the Lord. You notice he didn't address who's right and who's wrong. And and it's probably not a doctrinal issue because Paul usually addresses those. It's probably not a morality issue because Paul usually addresses those. He don't address whatever the issue is. And so it might very well be a very gray matter that people can just kind of choose to, okay... He says, so I want you to agree in the Lord, and so you need to make a choice. I, it's not about who's right, it's about who's wrong. It's about how you choose to deal with the situation, and you need to choose to agree in Christ, to agree in the Lord, to find your unity in Him. And so Paul urges him to do that, and he actually encourages someone to get involved. 
He, sa- he writes to his true companion. And some people think, because the Greek word there can actually be a proper name, that it might be a particular person. Uh, notice the ESV translation doesn't think that. Uh, but it could be a particular person that he's calling to. But true companion could be just someone that they would have known who he was talking to. Uh, he could be referring to the pastor or a past- pastor in this situation. He could be referring to Epaphroditus, who he's sending back. We-, we don't really know. But the point is, he wants someone to get involved, someone within the church with this dispute, and to help this help this get settled. He wants them to help him because there is a time to invite someone into your business from time to time. Sometimes we need to invite other people into our junk and into our business uh, to help move on from something. And there's time. Uh, there's a time to insert yourself into someone else's business. And at this particular time, someone else's business was now everybody's business. Because everybody knew about the issue. And it was causing a problem in the church. And the way you make that go away is not to ignore it. It is to deal with it. And to have awkward conversations. And to confront it head on. And to call it what it is. And that's what Paul's encouraging them to do. In a loving and a compassionate matter. And when church community is healthy. And people feel loved and cared for. And they feel like this you want their best for them. You can have these kind of conversations that Paul wants us to be able to have in the church. And deal with this stuff. Now... This is kind of the context for what Paul is about to get into in terms of having peace. Because this is probably one of the big things that's robbing them of peace in their daily lives. Is worrying about the situation at the church. And what Paul does is in verse 4 he immediately begins to call them to joy. He says, not the first time he's talked about joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And we've talked about how Paul walked in joy, rejoiced despite his circumstances. With problems without and within, he tells Philippi, you need to choose joy. You need to choose to rejoice. Because Christian joy is rooted, as he says, in the Lord and not in circumstances, whether good or bad. He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. He doesn't say rejoice in the quarreling that's going on between these people. He says rejoice in the Lord. And that's where our rejoicing takes place. This is not about faking it until you're making it. This is not about putting on a happy face. This is not about being a fake or a phony and, and really not appropriately mourning or being sad. There's a time to be sad. There's a time to mourn. There's a time for those things. This is not about being fake in your emotions. This is not about, this is about rejoicing despite the circumstances in the Lord and what the Lord has done and what the Lord is doing and who the Lord is. You can only do what Paul says, which is rejoice always when the foundation of your joy is in something that is constant and that is permanent and that doesn't come and go or change. You notice he says that? Rejoice always. Well, what about when he said always? And see, But if our joy is in our job or even in our family or even in certain other relationships, when those things get rocky or those things go bad or that job goes away or whatever it is that your joy is founded in, something happens bad with that, you have no joy now. But when your joy, the foundation of it is in the Lord, then no matter what happens around you, there is a cause for rejoicing in Him, in the Lord. So joy in the Lord sets our focus on Christ and on eternity and on things that matter most. And we can't rejoice in the Lord if our hope is in our our bank account or our, our personal success. You can only rejoice in the Lord if your confidence is in Him and your life is hidden in Him. So Paul wants us to walk in joys. And one of the keys to that is how we relate to others. That's why he says in verse 5, he issues a call to live selflessly. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And every translation just about translates that word reasonableness differently. Uh, one of the popular one is your gentleness. 
Um, one, uh, you could also say forbearance or your kindness or your tolerance. The idea is that we're to live a have a selfless attitude now we approach people. We are to be reasonable. We are to be forbearing. We are to be kind and general and tolerant. We're not to be easy to start a fight with. Is really what he's saying here. We're, we're not to be irritable. In fact, we're to put the needs of others before us. Many commentators point to the fact that he's calling them back to what he's already commanded. In Philippians 2, 3 and 4, he said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Lest each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He's calling us back to that attitude. And he says, this attitude of reasonableness, of gentleness, and of tolerance and forbearance is to be your reputation. Let it be known to everyone. He says, you're to be known for being not difficult to get along with, in a sense. You're to be known for being gentle with people. You're to be known for being forgiving. You're to be known for being forbearing. You're to be known for being selfless in how you approach people. That is to be your reputation. Is that our reputation this morning as a church and as a people? You've heard the old acronym, joy, Jesus, others, you. It sounds cheesy, but it's biblical. Because he's tying it directly to our joy. And there is a connection between the joy in your life and how you relate to and serve and communicate with and love on others. It just is. Because God has created us as such and has saved us in such a way that one of the goals and the plans for, his, his, for him, for us, for our lives, is that we love and serve other people and that we be humble towards others and that we, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, this attitude supports that. And if we're not in sync with that, we're not going to have joy because we're not living with the purpose for which God has created us and saved us. So, now in all this, this call to joy and this call to the selfless nature, he's moving towards peace. And that's the theme he begins to park on in verses 4 through 9 as he's giving the kind of these commands as he's closing up the letter and he's kind of addressing various things. But you can't have peace if you don't have joy. And you can't really have joy if you don't have peace. They're connected. You, you can't walk in peace without having peace in your life with God and with others as he deals with, with, the, with the conflict that was going on here between the two people in the church. So, he, he begins to lay out three very, very clear ways to walk in peace, the peace of God. And the first way he lays out for us there, starting at the end of verse 5 through verse 7, is we are to be people who are praying thankfully. It's not just about prayer, it's about thankful prayer. Look at what he says, the Lord is at hand... Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now he says, the Lord is at hand. This is a reminder that Christ will return. He's going to judge us. We're going to stand in front of Him and give an account for our life. But it's also a reminder that God's presence is here with us and He is sovereign over all these situations. There's no reason to be anxious. There's this, the presence of God hangs over and hovers over the text. Because it, He hangs over and hovers over and is present with us in our lives. And so he says, do not be anxious, right? Because the cure for anxiety is not simply prayer, it's God. That's the cure for anxiety and for worry. And the Philippians had temptations to anxiety and worry, both without and within. And he's telling them there's no place for it, not one single thing. When he says, do not be anxious, it literally means not over one single thing. When he says, do not be anxious for anything, it's not literally in the Greek, not one thing. Well, what about not one thing? It's all-encompassing in our lives. And it just means to be overly concerned for, to worry when he says that. It could easily be translated, do not worry. And Paul's point is that you're supposed to live, not suppo- it's not that you're supposed to live life detached from reality. And sometimes I think we, 
we kind of get confused here. And we, and we say, do not worry. And he doesn't mean like with the house is on fire that you're supposed to be like, oh, the house is on fire. You know, I'm not worried about it. You know, now that, that, that makes, that's, that's crazy. Okay. <laughs> that, that's not what he's saying. He, he, the point is not be detached from reality, but to be connected to ultimate reality. Okay, and that is that God is in control and is good and is sovereign over everything and that we're not sovereign and that we're not in control of everything. It's to be grounded in the ultimate reality of who God is and what God's doing in my life, not detached from reality and acting like nothing matters in life. That's not how God's called us to live. Listen to how Jesus said it. This command is very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 6. In Matthew six twenty-five, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? And then down in verse 33, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What's Jesus saying? Be grounded in ultimate reality. And ultimate reality is me and my kingdom. And you seek first my kingdom, and these things will be added to you. It's not that you don't need these things. It's that God cares for you in these matters. And being connected to ultimate reality is living my life in submission to God and seeking first His kingdom and realizing God's will and God's desires trump everything else and that He's my Father and that He's going to provide and care for me. So, to live life detached from reality would be to lose your job and then act like you don't need one. Right? And not go looking for one. It would be to, to not see to your own affairs in life and just to not deal with issues. Paul, or Je- Paul and Jesus both, they're not calling us to be emotionless zombies in life. There's a difference in a normal concern, by the way, and a sinful worry. God calls us to live our lives attached to His ultimate reality and to live as though... Like I said, he's in control and that he is provider and caretaker of our lives and that he's sovereign. And that means we take our worries to him and have him rule over the concerns. See, when you're detached from reality, you either think you're in control of everything or you think you have no responsibility. You're right? You go to one extreme or the other. And when you're attached to the ultimate reality of who God is and what God's called you to, you know that God is in control and by his grace, with his strength, you can fulfill the responsibility that he's given you, but not feel the responsibility that he owns himself. See, reality is there's more to life than the things of this life. That's why, you notice Jesus said, is there not more to life than food and clothing? He goes, list. And so whatever your worry is, you could ask yourself that question. It's a good thing to pause and do. Is there not more to life than? And the answer is always yes, because ultimately, life is ultimately about Christ and His kingdom and what He's called us to. So He says, I want you to seek first the kingdom and let God handle all the rest. Not that we don't see to our own affairs, but we do it from the posture of trusting God with the situations and with the provisions in our life. Now, there's a time of, this is a time of year, as I mentioned, that anxiety and worry kind of go on high alert sometimes. For instance, most anxiety, it seems like, is connected to relational issues in our life most of the time. And so this time of year, there can be lots of family stress. Some of it's as simple as remembering heartbreaks that have happened in your past. Some of it's as simple as loved ones that have passed away that we long for and remember. Some of it's, though, it, it's, it's stressful people that, 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 that show up around Christmas. Or it's, it's, it's relationships and issues that, that kind of just keep coming up and the, and the turmoil comes up. Mo, much anxiety and stress in our lives and worry gets connected back to relational situations. Financial situations this time of year. We begin to spend too much money on gifts. And sometimes for people we hardly know. 
right? It's, it's trying to keep up your kids with these people's kids and, and to put on an appearance. And, put on, and so people stress themselves out financially and they overspend to try to keep up with the Joneses. If the Joneses are here this morning, slow down. I'm just kidding. But, but seriously, we, we, we get all out of balance in our lives and we, 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 we create even more stress in our lives this time of year with finances, with relationships. And even the financial stress goes back to relationships with other people many times. Professional stress as you head towards the end of the year and there's deadlines and there's budgets and there's quotas and there's sometimes longer hours. and Then there's spiritual stress. The reminder maybe of non-Christian family members and friends that you're burdened for. Or if you're not a Christian this morning, this time of year can be the reminder of your own disconnect from God and maybe the faith that you were taught as a child even. And so there's all sorts of things that kind of feed into this and for some people make this kind of a dark time of year. And when worry comes... Then comes the desire to get rid of that worry and that anxiety. We begin to look for, how do I get out of this? And there's two extremes. One of them is what I call heroism or the fight mode, right? I've got to fix this. And so you try to control everything as if the whole world depends on you. So sometimes we overwork to earn more money or we spend too much or we plan too much, right? Because we're trying to control everything. So we drive everybody crazy with this over planning. But sometimes it's the other way. It's escapism. It's the flight mode. It's I can't handle this, so I check out. And people turn to substance abuse. They withdraw from community and isolate themselves. And they overwork to avoid being at home or they oversleep to avoid living life. And they begin to kind of push back from reality. And Paul gives us a way to deal with these stresses and these anxieties instead of being anxious and worrisome and filled with sin. Instead, he says, be filled with prayer. He says, and everything with supplication and prayer. See, when you worry, you own it. When you pray, God owns it, right? And so he said, I want you to take your anxiety. It's like Peter tells us in 1 Peter to cast our anxieties, our cares, our worries on him because he cares for us. And so we take these requests and these concerns and we, and we give them to God. But notice, he, here's the key. He says, Thank, with thankfulness, with gratitude, with thanksgiving. And that's where we miss it a lot of times. It's just as simple as that. We have to be careful to avoid what Tim Keller calls in his book on prayer, to be careful worrying out loud before God, which is what our prayers can be sometimes. Yeah. I mean, but we can do that, right? And we're just worrying. It's not, it's not fixing anything. We're getting ulcers from our prayer life, right? And what's the guard against that? It's gratitude. It's thankfulness. Do you notice he doesn't say, make your requests made known to God, and when he answers them, say thank you? He says, you make the request with thanksgiving. It's opposite of the way we normally do things. Somebody gives us something and we say thank you. He says, no, when you come with the request, you say thank you. You you come with an attitude of gratitude, an attitude of thanksgiving for who God is, what God's done in his life, and the fact that you can trust him with whatever. You're coming with the approach that God is bigger than me and that he is my father and that he is good. And whether I like what happens here or not, I can trust him with it. And I am thankful that I can come to him with this request. And it changes everything. And that's how your life gets reordered. He says, when this happens, peace of God begins to guard your heart and your mind. See, one day we're going to get peace from troubles. But until then, we get peace in troubles. The key to a Less unhealthy worry and anxiety and and fear in your life is not less problems. Some of you know, some of the godliest people you know have some of the most problems. 
They got health problems. They got family problems. They got all kinds of stuff going on. And they're some of the godliest people you know and seem like some of the worry-free. So why is that? Because it's not about the amount of problems you have. It's who you trust with the problems. It's your connection to God and this attitude of thankful prayer. And he promises this protection over us. And this protection is the peace of God. You know God can handle what you can't. And when you go to God in prayer and with thanksgiving, not simply worrying before him, he, he grants this peace. He says it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. Ever wonder what that means? I read this in a commentary this week. I want to share it with you from Richard Mellick from the New American Commentary. He says, No doubt he had in mind situations where knowledge is insufficient. Sometimes it cannot explain and sometimes explanations do not help. What's he saying? He's saying this is a peace that can come when there are no answers. When we, when we don't know why or even if we had an answer, it wouldn't make us worry less. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. It's better than understanding. It's the peace of God. It's better than knowing why it happened. It's better than knowing what's going to happen next. It's knowing that God is sovereign and God is in control and that we can trust God. It's the peace that surpasses understanding because it goes beyond answers and it goes beyond what we can explain intellectually because sometimes we just can't. And he says, this peace will guard your heart and it will guard your mind. And the Greek term there for guard is, it's, it's a picture of like a Roman soldier standing guard. So when I, when I thought about it this week, I thought about like when you drive through roadblocks, right? Especially this time of year and around New Year's, you might see some of those. and Maybe they're looking for drunk drivers or maybe they're looking for a criminal, right? But they're stopping everyone and they're checking IDs and they're looking you in the eye and they're, and they're looking at checking out the back seat and they're looking for stuff because whatever it is they're looking for, they're not letting you pass that point if you're it. And he said in the same way, like an officer stands guard or like a Roman soldier stands guard, he's saying the peace of God stands guard over your heart and over your mind. And as things come your way that could cause worry and that could cause anxiety, the peace of God begins to check it right there and say, nope. And it begins to put a protection over it. And he says the way we access this is through thankful prayer. And he says it's in, it guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't miss that. That's one of Paul's favorite phrases in all of his books. The peace of God is connected to the person and the work of Jesus Christ like every other blessing that we have in Christ. It's connected to Jesus. It's found in Him. It's connected to Him. And God's given us a choice. We can be anxious and worrisome or we can have peace. And the difference is connected to God and how we relate to Him. And the means He has ordained for us is thankful prayer. So He says, the first thing I want you to do is to be, I want, I want you to be praying thankfully. But there's another part. There's another piece to this. He says, secondly, I want you to be thinking rightly. He says in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, lovely, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, any of that, any, if there's any of excellence, if there's any worthy of praise, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So he moves from praying to thinking, but he's still in the realm, as we see in the next verse, of peace. And so when we think, and when we behave in accordance with God's standards, we're going to see we experience the presence of the God of peace. See, Paul gives a list of qualities here, and all these things point our eyes and our hearts and our minds upward. He says, whatever is true. You know, that word, when you look it up, the, the Greek word, it, just, it means consistent with truth and reality. How often is worry not even rooted in reality? Think about that. Your, your mind begins to go places about what might happen if this happens. What someone might say to you. And the whole situation becomes a cartoon, Right? It's, it's extreme. It's over the top from whatever it, it could be and because it's not even true. How often do you turn people or situations into these cartoons of reality? See, the battle for peace starts in your mind. 
And it begins with truth and reality and thinking according to truth. And there's nothing more truth, truthful than God's word. And thinking in accordance to that. And, and Paul's pointing us to God's word. He's pointing us to God's truth and God's law. He says, whatever is honorable or worthy of respect, whatever is just. In other words, in line with justice. Who does the Bible say vengeance belongs to? A lot of times we worry about vengeance and about getting even. And he says, but you need to think on what is just. Well, justice is defined according to God's terms. And God says, I'm the just one and I'm the one. Vengeance belongs to me, not you. He says, so he's, he's pointing all of our mind. He's trying to get us to wrap our minds around thinking biblically and in line with God's word. He says, whatever is pure or innocent, whatever is lovely, that means pleasing, whatever is commendable, whatever is of excellence, speaking of excellence in character and virtues, and whatever is worthy of praise. So see, all these things point us to God's word and point us to Christ, who's at the center of God's word. Because nothing is, no one is more just than Christ and more honorable and more worthy of praise. And, and, and no thought we can think of is higher than the thoughts uh, and more truthful than, than, than God's word. And Paul's whole point here is not really for us to necessarily parse all the words. He's kind of just given us a bunch of words that are kind of similar. And his, his whole point is behavioral transformation begins with mental meditation. <laughs> As you think, so you will do is the point. Your thinking drives your behavior, drives your living, drives your lifestyle. That, that's his point. You've got to get a mind or get, get, a th- get a handle around your mind. This is not the same as the power of positive thinking. That setting your, you think positively and good things will happen to you. That's not the point. The point is you think biblically so you can handle it when junk happens to you. <laughs> that's the point. Have you ever noticed that the people you know who handle worrisome things the best and have, seem to have the least worry on their shoulders and, and, and have the healthiest approach to life many times is some of the godliest people you know that who, who know the word the best, who spend the most time in prayer. There's a reason for that. Romans 12, 2, Paul said it this way. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The, the preventing conformity to the world and all the worries of the world begins with the transformation, the renewal of your mind. He says that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, the word of God and the son of God who's at the center of that word is what he's driving our hearts and our thoughts to. He's wanting us to contemplate Christ and his virtues and his character. And he's wanting us to contemplate the truth of God's word. And so we have to know the word and we have to fill our mind with God's word. And we have to think on it and turn it over in our mind. Or Meditate is the word. We, when we think of meditation, we think of emptying your mind out and sitting there and like, you know, staring at the sky and closing your eyes. And, and we think of Easter meditation. But that's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is filling your mind, not emptying your mind. It's filling your mind with God's truth and God and thoughts about God. That's why God call, that's the kind of meditation God calls his people to. And as we fill our mind with God's word and thinking how God wants us to think and thinking in line with right doctrine. This is why doctrine matters. Thinking biblically is what that means. Thinking biblically matters. It helps guard you and helps and helps usher peace into your life. It helps you handle difficult situations because instead of thinking according to cartoons of worry or lies and things that aren't true about people or about things, you begin to think in accordance with the sovereignty and the goodness and the kindness and the patience of God in your life. He says, think about it. Think about these things. It means consider, to count, to reflect. It means to ponder. See, when you're not filling your mind with God's word, then you're tempted to worry about things. Instead of thinking biblically, you'll begin to think worrisomely. See, doubt fuels worry. And faith is what wars against doubt. And the Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. 
The way you grow faith in your life is through the Word of God. And faith comes against and helps wash out doubts which lead to worry. It's all connected here. And what you're thinking about, what, think about it. What are you thinking about when you worry? Are you thinking about how good and sovereign and in control God is of the situation? No. Right? You're not thinking that. You're thinking of, of, you're thinking of how you don't feel like God's even paying attention to the situation many times. We're not thinking biblically. How we think matters. You see, where, where does your mind go? Does your mind go often toward God? Do you think biblically about situations? Do you think often of Christ, of His work, and of His example when you're dealing with difficulties and situations and things that tempt you to worry? Paul cares about our thinking because it ultimately is connected to our behavior. That's number three, and that's living obediently or behaving obediently in verse 9. What you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He doesn't just say, if you think this way, the God of peace will be with you. He says, if you think, and then now if you practice all the things I've taught you, all the things you've seen in me, all he says, all you've learned and received, the apostolic teaching that had been given to them, Things like this letter and other teaching they had received. All you've heard and seen from Paul's example and from Paul's model when he was with them and now even when he's in prison. He says, now you put it to practice. You put feet to your faith. You, you do what you know you should do. And Paul's point is they need to take all that they've learned through, the, the, through his example and through his teaching and they need to obey it. You can pray and you can think and you can do all that, but at some point you've got to choose to obey the truth that has been revealed to you. Thinking and meditation and filling our minds is meant to lead somewhere. Not just happy thoughts. It's meant to change our behavior, right? It's the reason you put gas in a car is so the car will go somewhere. So the car will run. I learned that the hard way. I remember years ago we were, I was um, living in Birmingham. And was, I think I was headed to church. And I happened to have a friend behind me. And sure enough, I thought, I've got enough gas, right? That, that light's only been on for like, Six days? I've got enough gas. And sure enough, I got off at the exit and it died in the exit. And I had to go. And fortunately, I had a friend pick me up, take me to a gas station. We got it running. And fortunately, it didn't ruin the car or anything like that. But, you know, you don't put gas in a car to just go park the car somewhere. You put gas in the car because you want to go somewhere, right? You don't, just, you don't just have it sitting full of gas for no reason. There's a point we put gas in the car. And there's a point for your changing your thinking. There's a point for putting the, the, the kind of thinking that Paul's talking about. There's a point for it in your life. And it's because he wants you to go somewhere. And that's living in line with God's design for your life. It's pursuing this example. It's practicing what you know to be true. It's behaving rightly. It's living obediently. That's what he's calling us to. And he says, well, when that happens, he says, God's presence is with us. The God of peace will be with you. See, first he promises the peace of God. Now he promises us the God of peace. See, the point is that God's peace is not some abstract thing. It's tied directly to God Himself. You can, have, you can have the peace of God because you have the God of peace actively at work in your life. Dependent on Him, it's something He gives. But disobedient lives rob us of this peace. Our peace is directly connected in this passage to our relationship with God. It's Him we rejoice in, He says. It's Him we pray to, He says. It's Him and through His Word that we are to think on. And it's Him we obey. And when we choose to rebel, we're pushing back against the very One who offers us His peace in the midst of all of our difficulties and things we're tempted to worry about. So when you refuse to fellowship with God, don't be surprised when your life is filled with worry and anxiety. Your prayers become affected. Your thinking gets off. Your joy is lacking and your peace is robbed. 
The problem is when we refuse to put to practice what we know, we're living out of sync. We're living out of sync with the God of peace. Our, our life is out of rhythm with how God created us to, to, to be and created us uh, to live. He created us to, it, to run in such a way and to function in such a way. And when, when we're not thinking biblically and when we're not praying thankfully and when we're not living obediently, we're living out of sync with God's will for our life. And it's just like that stinking bicycle chain that breaks off the bicycle and no longer, now the bicycle won't run, right? You remember when you were a kid and you had the bicycle chain and something hits it, a rock hits it and it comes off and I couldn't ride my bike for a month after that because I can never figure out put the chain back on, right? But when the chain's on there and it's running smoothly and it's nice and oiled up and it's not rusty, man, the bicycle runs nice and smoothly. It's in sync. And the wheels turn and everything's in sync on the bicycle. Everything's in rhythm. And that's how God wants us to live our life. And, and when that happens, we can handle the bumps and we can handle the issues that come on, even the things that really rock our world because we're connected to not just the peace of God, the God of peace. But we can't enjoy Life, much less Christmas, if we're anxious and worried and seeking to cure our worry with broken cisterns and empty wells of this world. Beware this season, by the way, of using the sentimentality of Christmas as an escape this season. In effect, avoiding the Christ of Christmas with just the sentimental things attached to Christmas. What you may need this Christmas is not simply some mall therapy, some shop therapy or some carols or some sweets or just lots more eggnog and decor that we like to drown ourselves in sometimes. You may need to pray, <laughs> right? You, you may need to, to get your thinking in line with the Word of God and fill your mind with God's, wor- God's Word. The worry in your life may be a symptom of a deeper spiritual issue. Don't use Christmas as an escape. Instead, of, instead, press into the Christ of Christmas, the Prince of Peace, the God of Peace, who wants to change the way you think and the way you pray and the way you live this season. True joy, the Bible teaches us, is found, and true peace is found in the Lord, he says. It's rejoice in the Lord. It's, it's he guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so the first question we have to answer this morning is, is do we know this Christ? Do we know God? Do we, do we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? That, that's the first question you need to answer this morning. So if you're here this morning you're not a Christian, if there's never been a time in your life where you realized you were a sinner and in need of saving, in need of a Savior, and repented of your sin and embraced Christ Jesus, the Savior, who died in your place on the cross and rose again. If you've never trusted the little baby in a manger that grew up to be a man that died for your sin and rose from the dead, if you've never surrendered your life to Him, if He's not the one you're following, if all you've got is some tip of the hat, if all you've got is just some, I'm a Christian in name only, but you've never genuinely turned to Him and embraced Him, that's where peace begins. It's peace with God through faith in Christ Jesus. And if you're a believer this morning, you have peace with God. The question this morning is, are we choosing to walk in the peace of God? And the way you do that is to walk in fellowship with the God of peace. And so we pray with thankful hearts. We We fill our minds with His truth and we choose to obey what we know to be true. Are you filled with worry? Are you filled with anxiety this morning? Uh, The first step in helping to deal with that is to the first step He gives us, which is to pray.